love of money. Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Well, good morning, Toronto. Good morning, Canada. Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. Jack Hartle in the studio. Wolfgang Klein, your host this morning. Brothers and sisters, we got a good show for you yet again lined up. We're going to talk employment law. If you get the pink slip one day, do not accept the package. Speak to a lawyer. Kumil Krimji's in the studio. Uh, employment lawyer partner Krimji Green. He's also a mediator with Krimji Resolution. Uh, later in the show, we are going to learn about graphite. Graphite 101. Why does it matter? Because it is all about electric cars. Simon Marcotte, Vice President of Corporate Development for Mason Graphite, is in the studio to talk to us all about the innovation of this fascinating metal. And we're going to end it with a tour around the world with our favorite macro tourist author, Kevin Muir. Uh, he's going to, of course, speak to us about all kinds of funky things that have happened with the Canadian dollar to Rocket Man. Without further ado, let's welcome Kumail Karimji, employment lawyer partner with Karimji Green, LLP, which stands for Limited uh, limited liability partner. See? Partnership. Yeah, see, I love lawyers. You're great. In your first line, you limit your liability and let's go sue somebody. <laughs> of course. You guys are smart. I love it. I love it. Well, good morning, Wolfgang. <laughs> good morning. Welcome to the show, Kumail. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Uh, thank you very kindly. So, uh, Kumail, you and I have a, a long relationship. Uh, I, I consider you a friend of mine. Uh, and in fact, uh, I have solicited your services for, for, for clients of Jack and ours in the past, and you've taken very, very good care of our clients. Uh, notably, when, of course, one of our clients uh, gets a package and the employer says your services are no longer required, we strongly encourage all of our clients in that situation to seek an employment lawyer. So, Kuma, let's talk about that. Um, why is it so relevant that people receiving a package should not accept it for, uh, as is and should speak to someone like yourself? It's absolutely imperative that when receiving a package, an employee have it reviewed by an employment lawyer. Uh, often uh, there are many things that could be left out and serious enhancements that could be sought upon review. And that's why as a first step, uh, employees who are being let go, they're in a difficult spot. They're facing financial uncertainty. They're presented with a formal legal contract by their employer that's clearly hadn't uh, a lawyer drafted uh, with a release document. And it's uh, the, the prudent thing to do is to have it reviewed before signing off. So Kumail, I can say if, if an employee is getting a lot of pressure to sign it, they're let go on a Friday afternoon and they're, sold, they're told they have to sign it before they leave. Hmm. Um, what do you recommend? In that circumstance, I would recommend that the employee not sign. If I sure. received a call from somebody in that circumstance, I would say don't sign it. Our, our law is actually fairly uh, permissive in those situations. There have been cases where employees have been effectively pressured or asked to sign releases under duress. Right. And courts will often set, set those aside where there's that kind of pressure. What, what rights do they have in a high-pressure pressure situation like that? Do they have 24, 48 hours, or basically until it's reviewed by a, a lawyer such as yourself? Right. So the, the typical practice from employers is to provide a week to have a package reviewed. Uh, often, if uh, a lawyer is retained and a request is made, that can be extended, perhaps to two or even three weeks, depending on availability of counsel. So usually good employers well advised, uh, also recognizing that releases signed under duress are often not worth the paper that they're written on, right. will give a little bit of leeway to allow for a consult to take place. So, so, so give me an example here, Kumal. I'm an employee of a Toronto firm. I make $100,000 a year, and I've been working for that firm for 20 years. Typically, what would I be entitled to? You know, that's a, that's a good question. That's often the question that clients ask right at the get-go. 
And the answer to that is many uh, questions asked to lawyers is it depends. Yep. And uh, there are a lot of variables and factors that are uh, are taken into account in assessing what might be an appropriate package. The, uh, the first thing, of course, is what the employment contract itself provides for. There are some folks who have uh, what are called golden parachutes in their contracts, which may provide for a very extended period. Uh, there are others that have very restrictive termination clauses that may provide for very little. In the absence of a contractual provision, it's about your age, how long you worked there, how much you made, what you did. Uh, the long and the short of it, though, is that I can't say that somebody with that profile, if they don't have contractual limitations, would be entitled to a significant amount of notice. And that could be that could be as much as, depending on the nature of the mm-hmm. position, as much as two years. So do you think, what is the likelihood of an employer offering a full, fair package from the get-go? Yeah, it, it does happen, but I would say it's not likely. Many employers, and I should say I act for employers as well, will have a budget set aside when uh, undertaking a, a termination or a broader set of terminations, a reorganization or restructuring. And it's unusual to put the best number on the table in the first offer to the employee. Because the reality is, mm-hmm. with or without pressure, many employees will look at the package and think for themselves that it sounds reasonable, maybe consult with their spouse or a neighbor mm-hmm. or something along those lines, and say, well, you know what, I think that's, that's pretty fair and reasonable, and sign off. And the employer knows that. So if a certain percentage are simply going to take the first yeah. offer, then it makes sense to have something reserved if, if the whole point of the exercise is to reduce costs, which obviously, is usually what's happening. Yeah, it's obviously a very, very stressful period of time and a very difficult time for someone to make a very, very uh, important decision. Uh, so I want to talk to you about the front end. We're talking about people getting let go. Let's talk about people when they take on a new job. You have some very, very sound advice for that. So folks... It's early morning. Get some coffee. We're going to talk about employment law because, well, most of us have to work, and at some point that day shall end too, so we need to know how to do it on the front end and on the back end. Kumail Karimji is in the studio. Great employment lawyer. Stay tuned right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. All right, folks. Employment law. We're not chasing ambulances here. No, we're just trying to get what is rightfully yours after a long period of employment ends. Kumail Karimji is in the studio with us. Kumail, a real pleasure to have you in Hi-Fi Radio at such an early time of a Saturday morning. It's going to be a beautiful day, beautiful weekend too, so thank you for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, so Kumail, let's talk about now the front end. We spoke about the back end when you get let go. But again, what should employees do when they are about to take on a new job and are presented with, quote unquote, an employment contract, which could be 15 to 25, 30 pages in length for even a relatively uh, simple task? Jack and I hired a couple of students this summer and HR uh, came from downstairs with this massive package. What in the world is that? And it was a document that our summer students had to sign. It was 25 pages long. Uh, so it's so a lot in there. Right, right. So very wise to have that document carefully reviewed. And again, thinking about it from the perspective of the employee, the employer has had a lawyer typically have a hand in the drafting of the contract. There are some provisions in there that are most likely put in there because they're favorable to the employer. And it's important to look at it, to read it carefully, to make sure that you understand what you're signing off on. 
And there are a couple of provisions that can be particularly important that you might not think about a lot when you start the employment relationship. Usually for the employee, there's a lot of excitement, euphoria about starting a new role and mm -hmm. you just sign off. However, the contract really matters when there might be a problem or an issue that arises down the road. Two areas that I look at very carefully are the, the termination language. So quite often, uh, it's a bit like the prenuptial agreement. What it says is, we're hiring you and here are all the terms in terms of what we're going to pay you to do and what the job involves. But it also says, if for any reason, if it doesn't work out, here's what we're going to give you on separation, on termination. Mm. And quite often, those provisions can be very, very restrictive. Now, in the employee's favor, they're not always enforceable, but nonetheless, there can be very restrictive provisions. The other area to look at carefully is any provisions that deal with non-competition, non-solicitation, mm -hmm. particularly if you're in a sales role, can really tie you up post-termination and limit, it, limit what you can do if the employment doesn't work out with that employer. Of course, a, a fulsome review makes sense, but those are two areas that I think are really, really important to look at carefully. So, so, let's, so let's talk cost here, Kumil. On the, on the, on the front end, to, to have a, an employment contract reviewed by an individual like yourself, approximate cost for something like that. And I know it depends on time, hence how much time does it normally take? It depends on the situation. Roughly. Right, right. It, for sure. It, it depends on the complexity of the contract, for sure. A senior executive contract may take longer than a, you know, a, a, a lesser contract for, a, you know, a one or two page document. But if it's a, if it's a longer substantive contract with a lot in it, a meaty contract, it could be around $1,000 for a review. A review, yeah. Fair and, and so let's go to the back end now. How, how are you, you're compensated, I think, differently on the back end. If you, if, if you know, how you take on a client uh, due to an employment dispute or uh, what they believe is not a fair package upon uh, being terminated, uh, how are you compensated? So there are two ways. It could be an hourly fee based on the time that's spent in negotiating an enhanced package or litigating a case in the courts or it could be a deferred fee or a percentage-based fee that's used. And that's an option that makes sense for a lot of employees because they've just lost their job. They're facing a period of financial uh, insecurity. And so in those cases, they may be reluctant to incur a lot of costs to get what's rightfully theirs. And so from an access to justice point of view, uh, there's an approach that involves uh, charging a, a percentage of what might be obtained as a result of the negotiation. And uh, that's now permissible. It wasn't until about 2002 in Ontario. Just negotiating there on the on the front end, Kumail. Um, how many employers would say, you know what, I'm not interested in this candidate just because it's too many uh, hoops to jump through and they're asking me too much on the front end and they'll just go on to the next candidate. It's a, it's a challenging job market out there. People are, you know, struggling to get work. Uh, there's, you know, relatively a lot of employees out there. How many employers would just say, you know what, on to the next candidate? That's a very good question, and, and employees are often reluctant to engage in negotiations in a very aggressive way for that very reason, yeah. and it really depends on the negotiating power that the employee has. So if the employee is, for example, being recruited out of employment elsewhere, the employer really wants the person, they may actually, and I have had clients in many cases, uh, get some traction on reasonable amendments to a contract. In other cases, if the employee is one of many in right. a crowded field, the employer may say, look, sorry, this is a standard form contract that all our people sign and we're not going to move on it. So it really depends on how specialized they are because, you know, the summer students coming in for Wolfgang and I, <laughs> they didn't have a whole lot of negotiating power. <laughs> it, it, you know what I mean? So. Absolutely. So it's, 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 it's exactly that. So it depends really on the employee and whether or not they've got some negotiating power. Sure. And then the other question I had there for you, just on the, um, the lockup, like you said, the non-compete. 
Uh, how enforceable is that in today's market? Right. So uh, the the general starting point is that our courts don't like non-competition provisions. Mm-hmm. And so they're often found to be unenforceable. And it really depends on the scope of them. So how long they last for, the extent of the activity that they prohibit, and the geographic scope as well. The thing that I tell employees, though, on the front end is that even if the clause is one that has problems and may not be enforced, it's still a problem because when an employee is, say it's not a termination, they're resigning and looking for another job, a new employer will say, do you have any restrictions in your current employment contract? And when they look, they have to say yes, obviously, because they have to answer honestly. And in those circumstances, it could put a cloud on your candidacy, even if there's an argument to say that it's not enforceable. Because a company might not want to hire somebody with whom they're going to have a fight with the former employer. So you have to be careful about those clauses, even though the law is favorable to employees on enforcement. Uh, we've been listening to uh, and speaking with uh, Kumail Karimji, employment lawyer and partner with Karimji Green. Uh, Kumail, an absolute pleasure to have you in the studio this morning. Folks, if you are presented with the package, I strongly encourage you to seek legal advice. Uh, Jack and I have recommended Kumail to a number of clients of ours. He's done a very, very good job. How do they get hold of you, Kumail? Uh, either by email or by telephone is best. And, yeah. and your email address is? My email address is, uh, it's long, it's my full name, uh, Kumail, K-U-M-A-I-L, at Kareem G. Green, K-A-R-I-M-J-E-E, Green, G-R-E-E-N-E, so an E on the end, dot com. Perfect. And if you can't remember all that and it is early in the morning, uh, you can always email WolfgangKlein.com, check us out on the web, HiFiRadio.com will do the trick as well. Coming up next, we're going to learn about electric cars and Graphite 101 with Simon Marcotte. Corporate development for Mason Graphite right after this. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. Fire Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio AM 640. Ah. We know where we're going with this, don't we? Hey, little Elton John early in the morning. Rocket Man? Yes, Rocket Man indeed. So where's the connection here? Simon Marcotte's in the studio talking graphite. Graphite, of course, is used in the storage of power, storage of power, Tesla, Elon Musk, the Rocket Man. Hey, and you thought I was going to talk about North Korea. No way. Simon, good to have you in the studio with us this morning. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, and if I get fired after this interview, I know who I can. I know I can call you previous guest. You're fired by a missile. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh boy, did I ever laugh when uh, when Donald Trump uh, called the North Korean leader Rocket Man? I just couldn't stop laughing. We had, we had to use that in this uh, in this show today. So um, uh, you you spoke at our offices during the week. Jack saw you speak. You said you're a fantastic speaker, and uh, Jack educated me that graphite is in fact a key component in the use of 
power storage. That's what it's all about these days. Not being able to, producing power is one thing, but being able to store power is all relevant. So uh, please share with us, uh, uh, you know, for Graphite 101, uh, the, the relevance of Graphite. Sure. I mean, um, uh, Graphite goes into just about anything you have around you. So if you're listening to this program this morning, in your car, uh, well, all of your four brake pads are made of uh, graphite. Every uh, electrical um, connection, like your uh, windows, uh, will be made of graphite. Um, with the steel, uh, graphite goes as an additive into the steel, and it goes to make steel. So, if you're going to make steel, you need to boil steel. So, you don't want to you need to boil that into something that's not going to boil with the steel. So, those are refractory bricks. Those are made of uh, graphite. Um, so uh, you have graphite pretty much everywhere. Every plasma TV around you has a big uh, sheet of graphite in the back. That's how they can make them very thin now. Hmm. Uh, but go- going back to the car, you mentioned that in the introduction. It's about the world going electric. So there's a lot of uh, batteries. So for one electric car uh, is, ba- to make things simple, it's about um, you know eight 9,000 uh, AA batteries. That's basically what it looks like. Eight or 9,000 yeah. AA batteries. It, yeah, so that's exactly what it looks like. So there's a lot of uh, battery materials in there. And, you know, batteries are mostly made of, they're called lithium-ion batteries because it's the ion of the lithium that's active that goes back and forth between the positive electrode and a negative electrode. But most of the battery itself is made basically out of uh, nickel and graphite. So uh, in, in, a, in a Tesla, for example, uh, you have about uh, 200, 240 pounds of graphite. Wow. Yeah, that's... that's how, some, sorry, how much copper? Would you know that? Uh, th- there's quite a bit of copper as well. I, I don't know on a pound basis, but there's quite a bit of copper. Um, th- there's quite a bit of everything, but nickel and graphite are the two most abounded. And, cause, uh, cause and that's what one, Elon Musk uh, said recently. He said, we should call those lithium-ion batteries, we should, we should call them nickel-graphite batteries. Because hmm, Jack and I always thought uh, when it comes to Tesla, it's lithium. Uh, that's, what the, that's the first... When the clients call us... That's the brand, of the, right? Or that's the, yeah... The, the commodity that's branded to the battery. Hmm. Correct, correct. So. But it's, uh, it's it's Elon calls it the salt on the salad because it's actually very uh, little lithium, and especially lithium is very light as well. So when you look at it on a there's uh, very very little lithium. Yeah, and, and but also consider that lithium is light, mm. right? So when you compare things on a on a weight basis, um, there, there's quite a bit more of uh, nickel. Uh, of the graphite that's that, and you mine graphite. Yep. Yeah. So of the graphite that that's mined in the world, how much of it how much of it is directed towards uh, the production of batteries? Currently? So right, it's about twenty five percent of the world's production of flake graphite, which is what matters. Uh, there's different type of graphite, but what we talk about graphite for all these applications, it's flake graphite. So about twenty five percent of the world's uh, production currently goes into electro- electrical applications. Mm-hmm. And just to give you an idea of how much there's a change happening, just this one factory that Elon Musk is building in uh, Reno, Nevada, he's spending $5 billion on that factory. They will the require... Gigafactory, is that what it is? Correct, correct. Yeah. gigafactory, exactly. That uh, factory alone will require about 25% of the world's production of graphite. Uh, and if you think that's a lot, think about what Volkswagen just announced, that they will be spending $50 billion on such capacities, so 10 times more. And you look at what's been announced recently, that China is looking to go all electric, uh, following the footsteps of France and the UK. So there's, there's a change happening, and that may explain why the Chinese uh, recently announced that they're going to build a, a strategic reserve of graphite, just like the U.S. is doing for oil. Huh. They're building one for graphite. Isn't that interesting? Well, c- well, currently there's about 2 million electric vehicles on the road. 
Uh, it is forecasted by some that there could be upwards of 100 million electric vehicles on the road by 2035, which is less than 20 years away. So I want to talk to you about supply and demand and can demand keep up with supply in the graphite business right after this. Money. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. Money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio AM 640. You digging that, Simon? Hey, this is for you, Simon. Here it is, little men without hats. Hey, you're a Quebec boy, aren't you? I am. And so, and so now, so, so your mine is in fact in Quebec. It's in Quebec, yeah. It's uh, to be clear, it's a project. We're starting construction of the mine and the processing plant uh, in just a few months. So, 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 how do you measure the, the size of this mine in terms of tonnage? Oh, yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah, so uh, we do not need. Uh, well, we'll be producing fifty thousand ton of concentrate a year, uh, but the deposit itself is quite large. We do not need to drill a single drill hole uh, for two hundred and twelve years at this production rate. Wow. So we're not going to see the end of it. Um, at least not me. <laughs> no, no I, I don't, I don't, you know, Jack and I look at gold prices, silver prices, yep. copper prices. And if you ask me for a quote right now, I'd be pretty accurate within, 90, within 1% of the actual spot price. I don't have a quote screen in front of me. I have no idea what graphite's worth. How, how does it trade? What's it worth? Um, that, that is a very good question, actually, because graphite itself is not a commodity. Uh, you use graphite in the ground to make graphite products. And graphite products will vary wildly in prices. So if you sell graphite at the low end of the market, for example, to uh, for the steel industry or into refractory bricks, uh, you will have prices that will vary between uh, these days $600 and $1,200 uh, a ton. Mm-hmm. If you sell um, graphite, other graphite products, and sometimes very similar products, but to a client that is looking for very tight specifications, mm-hmm. you need something very, very specific, like for you know a sheet of graphite behind a plasma TV that was referring to, or a brake pad that you sell to GM. Uh, those prices will be much, much, much higher. So, uh, so, so Simon, are yep. these uh, grades of graphite you're talking about, or it's different like transformation value-added type products that uh, that you're able to input into the product? That's it. So there's a, some, some there's a product design uh, that it, that has mostly to do with the purity of the concentrate and also the uh, size of the flake, and then you also need to add uh, what is the impurities. So if you're gonna sell a graphite that 99.9%, what is in the you know, 0.05 uh, really becomes uh, the question. And, and it's, you know, most clients uh, will need a different product and comes along a different price. No, the, the benefit to graphite in terms of battery production, I'm assuming based on your piece of paper you put in front of me here, is it's, it's high electrical and thermal conductivity. Is that the, that's Absolutely. The, that, that's why you have it in here. So at lunchtime, I was out with a client of mine. I said, hey, I'm going to learn about graphite today. And he said, hey, well, if you think about graphene, I said, graphene, I don't. I'm going to ask our guest. So tell us about graphene, Simon. Yeah, so graphite, you know, we I mentioned it was flake graphite. So uh, a flake graphite looks like, um, you know, basically a sparkle that you put on kids' balloons, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if you take one of these uh, small flake, uh, it's actually a um, numbers of layers of graphene uh, stacked together. So uh, it's about probably... 300,000, 400,000 layers of graphene. So graphene, as you can tell, is very, very thin. 
In fact, it's one atom thick. So it was deemed the first two-dimensional material. Hmm. So graphene was first extracted about 10 years ago by two professors at the University of Manchester in the, in the UK. Mm -hmm. And that year, they, or the following year, they, um, they uh, were awarded the, physical, uh, the uh, Nobel Prize of Physics mm -hmm. uh, for that discovery. So since then, and they were, they were looking for it, uh, and then by a fluke, they ended up cleaning the counter of the graphite they had, and they realized that they could extract the graphene with scotch tape. Because they were using scotch tape to clean the graphite. So uh, since then, um, we've been able to extract it. So we've been able to learn uh, a lot more about it. Uh, and now we've uh, found ways to produce it uh, at low cost. Uh, in fact, Mason Graphite owns 25% uh, of another public company, uh, which was made public just last week, actually, called uh, Nano Explorer. Uh, and um, now graphene as a whole um, has... Uh, limitless uh, applications. And the word graphene has been associated with basically every other word in the Webster Dictionary. Uh, and all like the amount of patents that have been filed using graphene is uh, is going crazy. So when Samsung is talking about making a bendable cell phone, that's made possible because of graphene. So graphene is um, like a thousand times more conductive than copper, 200 times uh, stronger than steel. So it has amazing, amazing possibility. Um, but the, the, the market is basically being invented for graphene as we speak. So, But there's going to be amazing amount of, of applications there. Yeah, because one of your products, it says low frictional resistance, which makes it an excellent lubricant Correct. And for, for what is a hydrophobic behavior. Uh, it obviously, doesn't it, it doesn't seem to uh, be affected uh, by by temperature change. That's right. Uh, so very very stable item as yeah, well. Yeah, it will melt uh, above three thousand degrees Celsius. Wow. Let's let's go electric cars. Uh, are they real? Are they here to stay? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and, and the electric car is not here now because Elon Musk started to make cool cars. That's not what happened. What happened is that Elon Musk foresaw that the uh, cost of the lithium ion battery would fall off a cliff. Because the cost of the lithium-ion battery over the past 20 years came down by 95%. And in fact, if you look at it by cycle, it's down by 99%. That is what made the electric car competitive to the gasoline car. And the price of the lithium-ion battery, because of scale going up so much, will fall much further. So in just a few years now, it will be cheaper out of the dealership to buy an electric car than to buy a regular car. You don't need to buy gasoline ever again. Yeah. So more, Moore's Law continues to be at work, even in the graphite business. Folks, you've been listening to Simon Marcotte, corporate developer at Mason Graphite. If you're thinking electric, you just may get some of his graphite in your car. And guess what? If you're at home watching TV late this afternoon, you're going to be probably watching on a flat screen graphite TV. Who knew? Coming up next, we're going to take a tour around the world with my favorite macro tourist, Kevin Muir, author and market extraordinaire right after this. Money. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. That's what I want. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. That's what I want. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio AM640. Good morning, Toronto. And may you have a lot of money. 
Hi-Fi Radio, AM640, Jack Hartle in the studio. Kevin Muir, the macro tourist, is here to join us. Uh, Kevin, I think one of the first times we had you on air, we spoke uh, immediately about Bitcoin. Um, I'll tell you the two hot topics from Jack and I's perspective in 2017 on Bay Street have been marijuana stocks and Bitcoin. Uh, and so Jack and I are trying to learn about blockchain. I, we, we went to a blockchain presentation this morning by a 20-something, that's what we used to call millennials, are now called millennials. By a millennial, this guy was a rock star. Uh, in fact, if Trump didn't uh, use the word rocket man, I would have called him a rocket man, but that's been taken. Uh, but no, very, very smart. So um, the, the reason I speak to you briefly about blockchain is Jack and I are learning about blockchain and cryptocurrencies is in, in one of your notes this week, you jokingly mentioned Hive, H-I-V-E, that trades on the venture. Uh, so, uh, and, and again, I took punched into my Thompson and saw the thing was up three days in a row. It was up 12% uh, on Thursday, down about, I think, 10% on Friday. Uh, so, so what is Hive and how are they piggybacking on the whole uh, Bitcoin cryptology? Well, Hive is, uh, it was a gold stock that the uh, Vancouver kind of promotion uh, promoters found a way to uh, basically convert it in, from a gold stock into a, uh, a miner. Yeah. So they went and found this company, Lita Gold, and they decided that it was uh, more advantageous to them to actually, instead of actually trying to figure out uh, you know, put a gold mine into it. They decided they were going to put a Bitcoin mine into it. So they took this mining company and they turned it into an actual Bitcoin miner. And they, uh, you know, they they gave themselves some stock. And and now they've actually gone out and uh, taken the thing public. And when you know it, it's kind of run from twenty or five cents when it was first trading as Lita Gold Mine into to I think it ticked above two dollars this morning. And uh, it's just unbelievable, kind of the excitement that's around this Bitcoin stuff. And uh, no, it is. Yeah, it's just it's just shocking. And uh, you know, it, it, it's a little bit scary and it's a little bit worrisome. And uh, I think that the people that are having a look at this should be kind of thinking about the fact that this stuff is running so fast and so quickly. Uh, they should really spend some time to have a look and decide what it is that they're exactly buying. I would say it sort of reminds you of back in 2000. I was in university at the time, so I wasn't in the markets per se, but uh, anything with a dot-com on it uh, immediately had it. The multiples didn't matter because it was a new paradigm, I guess, right? Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. And, and you know, like, it's actually more kind of uh, legitimate than, than some of these ICOs. Like, if you wanted to talk about some real crazy stuff, the ICOs, which is... So, these, sorry, what's an ICO? So, the it's initial coin offering. It's basically kind of just this... Uh, you, when you go and you buy an ICO, you don't buy it on an exchange. You basically go and you you go to these guys and you give them money and they give you basically shares of, of a new venture. But the thing is these shares aren't actually – when you go buy a company on the Toronto Stock Exchange or something, you're actually getting a piece of paper that has – uh, rights like you actually own part Correct. of that company. Mm-hmm. This basically what you're doing is getting kind of shares of this new blockchain, or and and they promise to do certain things with the money that they raise, but you have no legal rights once uh, once you give them your money. So it's you, co- it's completely unregulated, is no, what you're saying. It's completely unregulated. There was actually an ICO the other day whose model was we aren't going to do anything with this. This is basically just kind of a joke, and they managed to raise two hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's tulips, and you know you can say that blockchain. Uh, I mean that uh, Bitcoin has a future, and, and I kind of understand the arguments for a transactional 
kind of alternative, you know, and maybe it's Bitcoin, maybe it's Ethereum, maybe it's something else. But these ICOs are just like it's it's like at the end of a tecton bubble when when the dogs were going public and it just you know it was the 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 really crappy yeah. stocks. No, Jack and I Sorry, I say at the end of the day, it's the same as anything. You buy a stock, you, it's buyer beware. You got to know what you're buying. You got to have some kind of precedent or valuation to look at. Um, and when you don't, uh, it can be quite risky, I think, right? Right. But these ICOs are just in another league. Like, yeah. we're going to look back at this, and it's it's going to make tulips seem kind of, you know, tame. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, no, it's it's just, it's unbelievable. Well, so let's, 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 let's shift gears here. Uh, again, from a portfolio perspective, Jack and I are long-only managers. And, and again, to, just to uh, help 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 the uh, brothers and sisters at home, we, we, we manage money for clients. Uh, we buy them stocks. We buy them bonds. We hold some cash, maybe a little mutual funds, maybe some ETF. So we're long-only. We don't short the market. We don't use leverage. Just straight up, good old-fashioned portfolio management, trying to compound money at a you know a clip of 6 7 8%. That's right. what we're trying to do. And I've been able to do that for clients. So clients are relatively happy. Um, but the, the, the headwind that we've had uh, of late has been the rapid rise of the Canadian dollar. Uh, and, and much of that is precipitated on, on the weakness of the U.S. dollar and or much of the strength of emerging market currencies, um, which, again, behooves us because, in fact, those emerging market currencies are continuing to rise, as is the euro, putting downward pressure on the Dixie, and as such, that could put further upward pressure on the Canadian dollar. So where do you think we are with the U.S. buck, and where are we with the Canadian buck? Well, the U.S. dollar is actually a really interesting story because six months ago, uh, when Trump kind of came to power, uh, you know, the, the hedge funds and all the, the hot money was just falling all over themselves to buy U.S. dollars. And it was just, it was rocketing higher. He could do no wrong. He was going to cut taxes. He was going to get rid of regulation. Build he the wall. Was, yeah. He was going to do every, build the wall, yeah. <laughs> he was going to do all these things that were pro-business yep. and was going to, and, and basically there was a rush into the U.S. dollar. And even at the time you mentioned emerging markets, there was a lot of concern because one of the problems with emerging markets is they have a lot of U.S. dollar debt. Mm -hmm. And when it rises, it basically hurts them. Mm -hmm. So so when, when, when Trump first came to power, we had this huge rush into U.S. dollar. And then basically over the last few months, it's, it's been kind of one disappointment after another. He hasn't been able to do the tax cut. He hasn't been able to, to, to spend anything on infrastructure. Basically, he hasn't done any of the things that he promised. And actually, the U.S. economy is one of the weaker economies when you compare it to the strength in emerging markets. Even the, our economy is flying compared to theirs. Or, you know, even Europe is looking but, but a lot they, they, they rallied first. They, they grew first. They came out of the crisis. For the same with me, Simon or, or Kevin, excuse me. Uh, we have to pay some bills around here. You understand that bit. Uh, more with you, my good friend. Just hang around for a few seconds, okay? Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. Love of Money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Uh, yes, we took a request from Kevin Muir, and he wanted to hear some new order, Blue Monday. Why? I don't know. It is a gorgeous Saturday morning. The sun is shining. But hey, Blue Monday, new order, Kevin Muir, all at once. Thanks for being here, buddy. Oh, my pleasure. I'm giving away my Gen X uh, 
age there. Yeah, yeah, no, no I'm, I'm a little <laughs> retro alternative, retro 80s. It's all good, my friend. Um, so where do we leave off? Donald Trump, the U.S. buck. Uh, Trump could do no wrong. He was going to save America, make it great again. U.S. dollar rallied. And now, of course, it is a reversal of that. You're seeing the euro rally. Uh, I assume the pound has, has the pound has rallied a wee bit as yeah, well. Yeah, po- it's actually rallied even more recently. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, which of course, and again, the U.S. dollar trades in a basket. Most people don't know that. Uh, the DXY, we call it the Dixie. So it's a number of global currencies that uh, are, pri- are are used to price the value of the U.S. buck. And of course, the U.S. buck and the Canadian buck, they, they overshoot and undershoot fair value. Uh, again, Jack and I did some work this week. Fair value for the Canadian dollar or the Big Mac index or purchasing parity is about 80 cents. It's trading about 81 cents right now. So the loony is a little bit overvalued right here right now. But where do you think the, the U.S. buck's going for the rest well, of the year? Well, it's actually really interesting because we went from this point where everyone loved the U.S. dollar to this point recently over the last month or two, there's been kind of in the hedge fund community this this uh, kind of theme out there of the whole idea about the U.S. losing its reserve currency status. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, there's talk about the fact that the Chinese are uh, listing their own future, their first futures contract, and at the same time, they're allowing, um, they're listing a gold contract. So, whereas before all oil trades were done in U.S. dollars. All of a sudden, Russia and all these other people that, you know, are providing oil to China can actually receive renminbi and then take delivery if they don't want their renminbi um, because it's not a fully open currency, can receive it and take gold. You know, it's funny because we were at a blockchain presentation this morning, and, and, and the, pre- the presenter, the millennial, said to us, in fact, in, in a perfect world with blockchain, I could sell a Volkswagen to a Auto, or to a, uh, uh, a gasoline company who can then transfer that into into clothing company, into food. Uh, so there'd be no intermediaries. Get rid of the friction is what he's talking about. Well, yeah, and, and but, the, you know, that's your millennial. Of course, he thinks that it's going to be the blockchain, but, you know, us old guys think that maybe gold would be the actual currency that ends up being kind of the anchor upon which the global financial system is. You know, it's funny because, again, gold, it, it, that was the uh, the backing for the financial system, biblically speaking. Uh, gold has a new competitor in the room, of course, which is crypto. Well, you're absolutely right. But, I, you know, I like kind of on a tangent, but I don't think that the, the authorities are going to allow uh, the Bitcoin to survive, you know, it's going to become much more difficult for the uh, for all these kind of exchanges. And you already seen this in, in in China. They came down and they closed all the exchanges. They said that's it, and right. and they told the guys, the owners of the exchanges, that you you better not leave the country over the next couple of months. And so I just don't see in the long run that the Bitcoin is going to be something that's going to replace, you know, what the gold gold we've had for. Many, many millennial, and uh, I, I think that it's more likely to survive as the anchor than, than Bitcoin. Jack, what does uh, Warren Buffer think about gold? Uh, he's not favorable on the uh, on the, uh, the no, no, but if, if, if the Martian story. Tell us the Martian story with Buffer. Oh, I'd it's say just, just the fact that uh, you know us going out there and digging up gold and the cost of capital that it takes to dig up gold for the fact that all we do is put it back in storage and it costs us to store it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So if uh, aliens were looking down on people... I'm sure that wouldn't be the only thing that they thought was a little weird that we do, but that would that would definitely be one of them. So, think, so, so, think, so watch the people take the stuff out of the ground. Yeah, and then all the cost it up yep. and then put it back in the ground. 
I think they'd also be kind of confused of us picking up the dog's poo, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. But he, you know, Warren Buffett's absolutely correct that in a perfect world, the fiat currencies would work, and there would be no need for gold. But the trouble is, there is a need for gold because fiat currencies get abused, and over many, you know, tell me the tell me a currency that was deflated away versus a currency that was, you know. That, that, that's interesting. So yeah. perhaps maybe that's why the gold ring, you put the ring on your finger, it keeps you honest. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a there's a, a, a famous kind of uh, maxim where they talk about the fact that, you know, one ounce of gold could buy you a nice suit in 1800. And then, you know, throughout the years, it, it, you know, it varies. But generally on the whole, it's it's maintained its purchasing power and, and it still gets you a nice suit. Yeah. But anyways, back to the U.S. dollar. Um the the U.S. dollar um, is it's all of a sudden is has some competition, and uh, right now all the hedgies and everybody they're basically pitching it, and and they've probably gotten a little too bearish on it over the short run. So if anything, I kind of think that uh, you, people should be weary of getting kind of climbing on board this kind of negative bandwagon towards the U.S. dollar. And hey, if you're going to go to Florida, why not? The U.S. bucks on sale. Buy it now. Folks, I wish you a great weekend. It's going to be gorgeous. Turn the radio up, get the coffee perkin, and uh, have yourself a great weekend. You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, Portfolio Managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email wolfandjack at wolfgangkline.com. For the podcast of today's show, go to 640toronto.com. New shows every week. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.